Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I am senior producer Gregory Haddock. And as you've noticed, we've been doing a lot of different things, trying to play with how we 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 deliver these stories to you. And the best way to do that, we have found and, and we believe as a collective is to democratize that space around storytelling. And that means opening it up to all the members of the Wildlands Collective. That is the parent organization of Eyes on Conservation. And today we are joined with a very talented young producer, Aishwarya Sridhar. Aish, how you doing? Hi, Greg. I'm doing good despite the lockdown in India. How are you? I'm doing really fantastic, but it's also not 45 degrees Celsius by, by me. Yeah, Greg, summers in India can get really hot. That does not sound good. Um, if you're not familiar with, with using Celsius, 45 degrees is just ridiculously hot. It's so hot. So I'm, I'm so sorry. And, and Ash is even doubly mad now because I, I, I asked her to turn her fan off. So uh, I'm really in hot water now, even though you're in hot air. <laughs> yeah, you are, Greg. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll take that. Um, Then let's not waste any time. Let's jump right into the story. Tell us what we're going to be listening to today. So today's episode is all about loving the oceans. Literally, Greg, I'm talking to the founder and managing director of Love the Ocean, Miss Francesca Trotman. Now, this organization is based in Mozambique, and they do some interesting and incredible work in the field of marine conservation. So we're going to be talking about her journey, what inspired Francesca to start an organization in Africa, her opinion on the current illegal wildlife trade, the COVID-19 pandemic, and so much more. Yeah, excellent. It's a pretty loaded topic. And she really kind of uh, created this organization from the ground up with kind of just this this, uh, mission at heart. Like she just wanted it, saw it, envisioned it, and went out and did it. Yes, absolutely right, Greg. Uh, It took just one trip uh, to Mozambique for her to decide that she wanted to start this organization called Love the Ocean. Now, the reason uh, which prompted her to do that, I won't reveal right now because I want you to hear it from Francesca herself. That's amazing. That's so fantastic. Well, let's not waste any time. Let's not have you melt any more than you absolutely necessarily need to. And let's jump into this story. Hi, Francesca. So tell me, how did your love for the oceans begin? I could probably trace it back to my eighth birthday. My mum took me to the London Aquarium. I'm British, you can probably hear. Um, My mum took me to the London Aquarium for my eighth birthday and I fell in love with the sharks there. And then I learned to dive and then, yeah, it continued from there. So I went to university and did marine biology and that kind of obviously solidified that. So yeah, I was just one of those lucky people that kind of knew what they wanted to do from when they were a kid. That's so cool. I mean, I love the oceans too. I love swimming, though I really haven't got a chance to dive yet. I would be very eager to do that. But uh, I want to know, how was your first dive? Well, if you do love to dive, you've got to come and do it here with us in Mozambique. (laughs) I would love to do that. (laughs) Um, I actually learned to dive in the Caribbean, so I was really lucky. It was like nice visibility and like warm water and stuff like that. And yeah, it was it was really beautiful. I was 13, so it was a while ago now. It was, yeah, really cool. We saw like seahorses. Um, I probably didn't have quite as much appreciation for it as I do now, because now 
I've dived more places, I know what good dives look like, and I know that what I started with was like really amazing stuff. So I feel like if I did the same dive again now, I'd probably find it even more interesting, which is saying something because I was a pretty curious kid. But <laughs> yeah, it was pretty amazing. I, I was really lucky with the dive center as well. They were really like kid friendly and stuff. It was funny because I was uh, on holiday with my folks. It was like our first non-European holiday. And um, they'd said, because obviously it was like warm water, they were like, okay, this is, this is gonna be like a once in a lifetime thing. You've got to try it. Like you might not like it, but we're gonna try it. And I did one dive and then signed up for my Paddy Open Water course <laughs> to do my first diving qualification, then spent my whole holiday doing the exams and studying for it. Yeah, so it was, I, I do actually remember that. <laughs> that was, uh, I just gave up all my other time and just focused on diving, which is basically what I've done for my life now. So that's fine. <laughs> uh, so from marine biology to setting up your own organization in Mozambique, it must have been one hell of a journey. I want to know more. I first came to Mozambique in I think it was 2013 so I was doing marine biology at University of Southampton in the UK and then it was the summer of my second year I was doing an integrated master's because it was just the cheapest and quickest way to do a master's course and I came to Mozambique to do a photography internship actually completely unrelated <laughs> but I was in this area and I saw my first shark killing and having been obsessed with sharks since I was like eight years old from that London Aquarian trip that was really emotional for me uh, so I wanted to work out why the sharks were being killed which was for the shark fin trade and then how bad that industry was in the area and what kind of effect that could be having on the marine ecosystem and the shark populations so I um, went back to university and I found a supervisor and did my came back out at the end of my third year before my fourth year my master's year and I collected four months of shark fisheries data with um, a few research assistants uh, working with the shark fishermen and uh, basically learning about the shark fin trade in here and collecting data on it and then I wrote my master's thesis on that and then basically got the results you would think in terms of like the shark fin trade i.e. it's unsustainable but I just didn't have enough data to get my stats significant and publish a paper so I needed to collect more data and I was trying to like come up with a way that I could do that financially and all the rest of it and uh, founding an organization seemed like the logical step forward so I started Love the Ocean so LTO kind of like started as just continuing the shark fishing data but since then we've kind of expanded our work hugely into a lot of different other areas because I kind of realized that instead of just telling the government that the shark fin ban uh, the shark fin trade should be banned we needed like multi-pronged approach, financial incentives, like loads of other reasons. So we changed it from just stopping the shark fin trade to establishing a marine protected area in this region as a whole, because the marine protected area will stop the shark fin trade, but also um, it will protect a lot of different other animals and habitats and um, increase tourism and things like that. That's some really inspiring work that you're currently doing, Francesca. I really loved to read about your organization and I was so inspired. So I want to know, why did you choose Mozambique? You went there for research and then you kind of decided that this was the place I wanted to start a marine conservation organization. 
so i would really like to know what was that incident or what made you decide that this is it i want to start love the oceans here it was just really lucky it was kind of a follow on from previous experience so i knew it was a problem that i didn't want to walk away from so i yeah started the organization basically to tackle the fin trade and that was the area that i knew best so i just decided to start there originally like i named love the oceans love the oceans because it's such a like broad name so it meant that we had like flexibility to basically do anything but as it is we've actually decided that we want to stay in mozambique and not kind of expand yet we want to achieve our goal of the marine protected area before we kind of start thinking about moving to other places or um expanding bases or anything like that so i live in a grass hut in mozambique and we have temperamental electricity um water sometimes cuts out like internet can be really dodgy um but you just learn to just not care about it so i think i can't really remember but i think at the start i cared a bit more because obviously it's just like the first getting used to it and but now it's just part of life here and you just don't life is just much simpler i think and and i love having a much simpler life here it's yeah it it does make you appreciate all the little luxuries as well like having constant electricity but honestly it's been like mozambique culture is a dream the local community is amazing like i love working with local community so it's actually been i think maybe easier than potentially what other people have had in other countries there's i think maybe a little bit of sexism at the start when we first started when i first started work because traditionally in mozambique culture women have a very traditional life path so um babies marriage at quite a young age um and most most women don't have careers here but once i kind of had some pretty straightforward conversations <laughs> around it was it's now just not a thing that's even like you kind of get a few raised eyebrows when you do something that's like t- really typically not female like lifting heavy stuff or you insist that like a lot of the time I'll like insist that I can lift something even if it's kind of killing me but just out of principle I just won't let a dude lift it for me <laughs> at least just show off yeah <laughs> um so occasionally you get like a couple of raised eyebrows but now I think I've just done that enough that no one even bothers anymore everyone's just like yeah right like that's that's just how you are um and we have like a with predominantly a female led team uh we have Pascal who's our, who's a male uh and is our um community outreach manager and we occasionally have like male seasonal staff that join us but because i think it's because we Andrea is our executive director and she's obviously female and i think it's because we're two women running a marine organization and in stem especially i think it's i think the stats unicef stats were like less than 30% of uh women uh, of researchers are women so i think because we're two women running a research organization we attract more women and we tend to have a predominantly female staff base and everyone's of like loads of different cultures loads of different nationalities so i think it's like it's definitely been an eye opener for pascal <laughs> um working with like cuz i think at the first maybe he was like oh this maybe this is just a british thing like maybe the women in britain are just like this and now because he's met so many people from so many different countries and cultures he's like okay this is actually a like worldwide thing <laughs> 
<laughs> that is so true i mean um even in india it is definitely not considered lady like to be in wildlife and wildlife filmmaking so even i do get a lot of raised eyebrows from people when i tell them that i'm a wildlife filmmaker and they're like what <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's like it seems to not really be so much of an issue anymore but that's literally just because we work in a very tight knit community so people know us but yeah when we first started i remember so the first year i ever ran um in 2015 i had uh, i employed my my friend who was a man and um he i remember being stood at one of the schools that we work at and we were discussing or i wanted to discuss because we helped with some of the construction work there and i wanted to discuss a part of the construction work and the head teacher just walked straight up to my mate and started talking to him and he was like uh well you need to talk to her and the head teacher just looked between us and was like what why do i need to talk to her i'm talking to you uh and he was like she's the boss you have to talk to her <laughs> so yeah i think it's like breaking down those stereotypes um that was a challenge at the start but i think it kind of pays off in the long run Yes, absolutely Francesca, we have to. It's high time. Uh so Love the Ocean is working on so many different marine conservation aspects and on projects. Uh tell me what are the current projects you're working on? We have continued the fisheries research that I did for my masters. Um and now we've expanded that because I was just looking really at sharks and rays of the Alaskan bank trade but we've expanded that to all of fisheries so like crustaceans teleos all of that kind of stuff as well then we also do coral reef research so we're looking at um biodiversity of the reefs and species richness and abundance things like that general reef health as well and then we also have our um, megafauna so we're looking at um humpback whales coral reefs and uh, sorry humpback whales whale sharks and manta rays and we're looking at ids so just like population counts for the area but then we're also looking at um a little bit of migration routes and then with the humpback whales we're also looking at acoustics too so we have a hydrophone that we work with with that and then on top of that we also do coral reef research uh, sorry ocean trash research and that is an area that we were looking to expand this year but that's been put on hold because of covid but uh basically the ocean trash research was beach based um looking at beach trash and uh, what types of plastics so obviously it's mainly plastics so looking at different types of plastics and um whether that's international whether that's local how we can reduce it what we can do there all of that kind of stuff um we were going to increase that data set to uh include a water column study so basically using like a zooplankton net and dragging that through the water and then assessing um how much plastic was in the water column and then linking that to the filter feeders that we have in the area like whale sharks and manta rays uh, and how much plastic they could be ingest ingesting as a result of water uh, plastic suspended in the water column uh, but we can't get the equipment for that out here at the moment um and all flights have stopped so <laughs> that's been put on hold uh and then we have two community outreach projects as well because the marine protected area that we're working to establish is the model that we're using is a locally managed one so you have to have a community with the skill set to be able to manage the marine protected area so we teach basic marine resource management we work with the local community we teach swimming and then we also have a sustainable livelihoods program which is basically 
looking at alternate sources of income to uh, unsustainable fishing. Wow, like literally wow. Your work is so amazing, Francesca. Thanks. So in 2019, a little birdie told me that Love the Ocean was recognized internationally by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. So congratulations, first of all. I mean, wow, that is a really big achievement. How did that come about? So it was kind of crazy, really. It was during, I think, during July last year. Um, we're really busy during like July and August, and we try and post on social media regularly. But you know, like it just gets really busy, so you just don't really have time to like post as regularly as we should. Um, but I saw like a follower had tagged us in this post that said, "Tag your force of change," and. Uh, your force for change and it was like a blue background so I assumed like marine and I didn't click on the post I just shared it onto our like Instagram and I said like oh go and tag us in this and what I didn't know was that that was off that was the Sussex Royal Instagram like basically I think what happened was Megan and Harry went through the like suggestions and then obviously vetted each organization and then like checked they were charities kind of thing and then chose 15 that they thought were worthwhile causes but then the next thing I know about it like they didn't contact us at all the next th- thing I knew about it was um our Instagram blew up in August with like loads and loads and loads and loads of comments and likes and follows and all the rest of it and yeah they'd chosen us as one of 15 global forces for change and that was really amazing and then we had I contacted them because we had uh, international whale shark day that month which is the 30th of August and I said like would you like to help us celebrate this like trying to kind of utilize the following that we were getting from Sussex Royal and um yeah they helped us out with that which was amazing so they helped us launch our adopt a whale shark campaign um, which basically funds our whale shark research and then Megan actually rung our director and um just basically said we think what you're doing is cool and she donated five grand five thousand pounds off the bat uh, for our swimming initiative to help build a swimming pool because we currently use a resource pool um which is we're really grateful for but it's much better if the local community has their own pool that they can use and because it means that we can train a lot more people and it's a whole business on its own so uh yeah it was it was a crazy ride um, but really really welcomed because we're a very small organization we hadn't really had much recognition before that and I think it's really lovely when you work like your ass off for something and then people kind of begin to recognize that it's actually worth something and that that you are doing something good and so yeah it was really really lovely to have that recognition wow like that's that's incredible to be recognized by the royal family like that for all of your work. That's truly incredible. Francesca's from the UK, and obviously the role of women in the UK is a lot different than that of Mozambique. Was there something particular about that that, that struck you? Yes, Greg. Uh, a lot of things were very similar with the way women were perceived in Mozambique and in India as well. Gender discrimination does exist in rural India, uh, where women are just perceived to be homemakers. Uh, whereas in urban India, that situation is definitely changing. Uh, a lot of women are career-oriented. Uh, they go out, they do some incredible jobs, and they come back and balance the home life as well, which is great. 
and i really feel that uh, for francesca to be born in a country like uk which is so liberal and to go and set up an organization in mozambique uh it was incredible i mean she's achieved so much and i'm sure she is definitely an inspiration for all the women in mozambique uh she's proven to them that uh women can achieve in a male dominated world yeah right probably a whole another layer of challenge that she didn't even anticipate before she jumped into that so let's go back to francesca now and hear from her about how she's using research to lobby for a marine protected area the way that it kind of all wraps together in our kind of holistic approach is all of the research is being used to publish papers um and that's being used to lobby the government for legislation change so in terms of like the actual establishment of the marine protected area but also changing laws in terms of like fishing practices and what fishing practices allowed and responsible tourism and things like that the megafauna stuff is uh, more to do with the financial incentive for the marine protected area establishment because people spend so much money going all over the world to see these animals during whale season we have whale season here from june to november and we have so many whales and if we can basically prove that we can more or less guarantee a tourist sighting of a whale during whale season that's a humongous pull to bring a tourist in and has the potential to generate a lot of money because currently the whale industry just is not utilized here like there's i wouldn't even say there is a whale watching industry it's so small like people tend to join in the whale watching with the diving and it's just kind of you go for a dive and you happen to see a whale on the way back but there's definitely a whale watching industry to be had in Mozambique a very successful very lucrative and very sustainable um industry that will provide an alternate source of income to unsustainable fishing and it will also bring revenue for the local community and the government as well so it's um definitely yeah the the megafauna is the financial incentive part of our strategy so how much does the government support love the oceans work The government so far has been great. We don't really work with the higher rungs of government for the main part. We're working with uh lower rungs and then the elders in our community which are basically um we work in two communities Pandani and Ginjata. We work with one elder from each. Each has an elder and they're essentially like the representatives of the entire community. So we work with them, we work with like the regional governor and the secretary for the area. and the chiefs yeah i mean everyone's been really on board with what we do we were very lucky um mario one of the elders the pandani elder he'd actually been to kenya and seen a similar marine initiative happening there uh so when right back in 2000 and whenever it was 14 or 15 when i was doing a needs assessment um i kind of said like do you think that like a marine initiative like this would have any kind of future here or would you be kind of up for helping run this and lead this and he'd actually seen it already like a successful version in Kenya so he was immediately like yes definitely like we can do this here this is going to be great let's definitely do this so yeah like we've we haven't really come up a, like against any kind of opposition so far um so so far so good <laughs> that's great to know Uh you mentioned something about doing beach cleanups and right now plastic is everywhere. I mean they're filling up our oceans, they are there in our environment. So based on what you have seen in Mozambique, 
I would like to know how do you feel that plastic, especially single-use plastic, is affecting our oceans? It's everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And it actually surprises me that people, I see news, new news articles coming out of like, this animal has plastic in its stomach, this animal has plastic in its stomach, and people seem surprised still. And I'm like, if you look at the consumption rate of plastics, like a million plastic bottles are sold every minute. Like, and we recycle less than 6%, I think the stat is, of plastic bottles. If you think about the rate that we consume plastic versus the rate like that we can actually deal with the waste, like recycle it and all the rest of it, of course we can't keep up. So where is that plastic gonna go? Like there is no out. We're on a planet. Like can't just send it into outer space. So it's going somewhere. So for us, we see plastic all all the time. Like all the time on dives, on beach cleans, on like snorkeling around, supping. Like anytime you're near the water, there's plastic there river systems as well it's not just the sea uh, and that plastic i think there was a, a new study recently that came up with a hundred percent of sea turtles have plastic in their stomachs that sounds about right like we've got a lot of sea turtles in our area and the amount of plastic we have there's definitely plastic in their stomachs hundred percent yeah so i think like single-use plastics the main thing that people have to do is consume less of it um like yeah we need to swap uh, to reusable products and all the rest of it and reusable plastics are better than single use but we also just need to change the entire like thought process of consumer culture so that we don't like it might not be more convenient to pack your lunch before you go to work in a container that you can reuse those at times and you might want to just go to the shops and pick up something in a plastic wrapper but you're saving the environment by pre-prepping and preparing your lunch beforehand so it's 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 about changing that entire mindset and the thing is is that plastics were invented and became like really widespread uh just after second world war so like in the 1940s and 50s they've been around ages like we our entire generation has grown up with very convenient plastics uh which are disposable and single use so it's about changing back to when our grandparents were and how how they lived uh, and going backwards in terms of the use of products right francesca so true in fact uh, the first time that i saw a shark was in the movie the jaws the great white obviously and i was really small and i got so scared i literally freaked out after watching that film blood splattering all across the screen and the sharks biting into human flesh oh my god it was terrible but as i grew up i realized that sharks were not dangerous creatures at all in fact it was the other way round that humans posed a very big threat to these endangered shark species so i want to know from you that how do you think people's perception towards char- uh, towards sharks changed after movies like the jaws or say the meg I mean I'll be I'll be real honest here I think it's incredibly irresponsible that the movie industry still makes these uh movies that turn sharks into dangerous killing machines and most of the time it's 
it's literally codswallop like it's made up like it it's scientifically impossible most of the time so yeah like first of all i think like the fact that movies are still being made making sharks into these horrible like mass killing animals is just ridiculous and people and actors and actresses need to take responsibility for that and say no to creating these movies that are actively damaging conservation efforts but post Jaws, uh, Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws, he actually realised that he did a huge amount of damage to shark populations and he spent the rest of his life advocating for shark conservation until he died, and I think it was 2006, because he realised what a massive error he'd made and it was like his biggest regret in his entire life was doing that movie. People like Peter Benchley post Jaws, obviously not writing Jaws, but <laughs> uh, people who become like big shark ocean uh, and ocean advocates they're crucial in terms of changing the messaging around sharks and making people realize that sharks instead of being these scary human-eating animals are actually really important predators that are apex predators so they are a keystone species they are really important they keep all loads of other species in check in the marine ecosystem and if we remove them we face the collapse of fisheries like there was a study in um i think it was north america where basically they overfished sharks and the sharks preyed on a type of ray that preyed on a type of clam and the clam was of commercial fisheries importance culture importance so they fished way too many sharks they overfished the shark population which meant that they weren't there to predate on the rays anymore so the ray population boomed and the rays overpredated on the clams and the clam fishery collapsed and that really affected everyone economically and also obviously as a food resource so you can actually like inadvertently completely screw over humans um through removal of sharks as an apex predator and we humans kill over 100 million sharks a year when you look at the stats it's ridiculous yeah it's ridiculous that people are so scared of sharks because you look at humans like we kill over 100 million sharks a year there are less than five fatal shark attacks a year like it's not it's you've got a much higher chance you've got I actually read some stats recently that were fairly entertaining. You've got a higher chance of um, dying from an electric shock from your toaster, getting squished by a vending machine, and taking a selfie. People have been falling off mountaintops taking selfies. Oh my god, selfie is a big killer here too. Uh, it's killing so many people more than diseases and accidents. So I think it's just insane that we are still living in a culture where people think, like, I can't explain how angry it gets me when a new movie comes out villainizing sharks again and you're just like, haven't we done this already? Haven't we been here? Haven't we seen what happens here? A human's never going to learn from our mistakes. Like, it just baffles me. Yes, it took me so long to get over that fear. Yeah. It's kind of crazy as well because, like, we're in the movie culture that the world lives in in terms of like popularizing shark attack movies that can affect like like you said you saw jaws when you're a kid i did too and that gets stuck in your brain when you're a child and then that stays with you through into your adult life and that's happened with generations now so even like my aunt who 
listens to me rant about conservation on a regular basis I spend Christmas with her like she knows my work she knows what I do even she said like a couple of months ago she was like yeah but do we really need all the sharks and in my head I was like and you've been exposed to me talking about conservation think of all the people that have seen these movies and have never even spoken to someone that works in conservation of course they think that sharks are really bad and why do we actually need to protect them so yeah it's um like movies like jaws and stuff whilst jaws is very iconic i think we should have learnt our mistake from that movie um, like there was a big shark culling that happened off the back of Jaws. We should have learned our mistake and gone, okay, we're not going to make a movie that villainizes such an important animal again. Um, but for whatever reason, the human race is just fascinated with our own demise. So we've continued to make those movies. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think we've dug our own graves right now. Be it the shark fin trade or the illegal manta ray industry, all of this has led to the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's been a speculation that the virus originated in the wet markets of Wuhan, China. And that's where it actually made the transition. So how important do you feel that at least now we need to ban illegal wildlife trade? I think the illegal wildlife trade is second in the world to the drug trade, the illegal drug trade. Like, it's a massive, massive, massive trade. And I don't think many people realise how widespread it is and how damaging it is too. I mean, like, there's so many conservation problems that have stemmed as a result of the illegal wildlife trade, which all end up having a knock-on effect on humans in some way, shape or form. So whether that be, like, cascade effects, like we spoke about with the sharks being removed, but you've also got, like loads of other issues in ecosystems, terrestrial and marine, as a result of illegal wildlife trade. So maybe now this will make people wake up and kind of say, hey, we should really start having a proper look at this and um, start shutting down these trades more effectively. So for people like me who want to come out there and help you do your work in marine conservation, and also enjoy the beautiful beaches of Mozambique and see whale sharks and humpback whales and manta rays. How does one do that? I mean, what are the different kinds of programs that you offer and how do we register for them? So everything's on our website and it's an online application process so people can go on the website and see that there. But the programs we have to offer are pretty um, widespread now, to be honest. We've been slowly but surely kind of trying to make it so that absolutely everyone and anyone can get involved. We have our uh, five-week research program, which is for university students. So we're partnered with a uh, Photographers Without Borders, which is an NGO that we work with. So most of the people that kind of go on that program are journalists or people who are just starting out in photography and wanting to be able to tell a story better. Then we also are partnered with Swim Tiger, which is a swimming charity. So we take swimming instructors during August, which is uh, winter holidays in Mozambique. So uh, all the kids are off school, so we can teach lots of swimming lessons all day. And then we have our school programs as well, where kids come from school and they do it as like part of a school trip. So their teachers come out with them too. Wow, that's lovely. So for all the people out there who want to go and experience Mozambique uh, and enjoy its marine megafauna, you know where to go now. Just head over to Love the Ocean's volunteer application form, go right ahead and fill it and you're in for a treat. 
So is there any personal story or a special memory related to the oceans or an anecdote that you want to share with all our listeners? We were on, um, there's a reef here called Pandani Express, which is a drift dive. And uh, I was at the back of the group uh, bringing up the rear and uh, my staff member was at the front of the group. The visibility was quite good, so we weren't, we weren't very close together. Uh, she was probably about 10 metres away from me, 10, 15 metres away from me. And we came to the sand bank and on one side you've got this coral and on the other side uh, it's just sand. So most people don't really pay attention to the sand bank because it's just sand, right, most of the time. And so she's like very closely examining this coral that she was like a coral nerd. So she was all over the coral, like learning about it and just taking photos and looking at it. And I looked to my left to the sandbank and there was just a baby humpback whale um, floating above the sandbank. And I had that moment of, do I swim and get her? And And the whale probably will have gone by the time I get to her. Or do I just enjoy this moment? And I'm ashamed to say I just enjoyed the moment. <laughs> and I told her afterwards, and she was like, what? Why didn't you tell me? And I was like, well, by the time I got to you, it would have gone. Um, the same girl actually missed a manta ray as well, swim past her head while she was also looking at coral. <laughs> so I feel a bit bad for her. But <laughs> <laughs> That kind of makes me remember the tiger sightings that we have in India. I mean, we'll be concentrating on something else uh, and you'll have a big cat probably walk right next to you and you won't even know it. And then later, at some point, you will find out that this happened and I'll be like, oh my God, there's a big cat right next to me and I did not see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful talking to you, Francesca. Thank you so much. Thanks. It was lovely talking to you too. My wife and I just watched Jaws like two weeks ago. It's it's still good. It holds up. It holds up. But it's like blow it's it's mind blowing how much damage that film did for the life of of sharks, the lives of sharks. Yes, Greg, it did a lot of damage to sharks. I mean, uh it created a negative image of sharks in the minds of billions of people. Yeah, when I think that's kind of the a little bit of the danger of Hollywood in general is because uh you know I watched that knowing like we're, you know, 40 years removed from when that movie was produced and thinking, yeah, I know that this is uh, not the way sharks are and this has done a lot of more damage than good, but it's still really scary. It still really made me like, oh, yeah, I don't I don't want to be anywhere near a shark. <laughs> yes, Greg, I shared the same sentiments, but um, yeah, I think after watching that film, even its own uh, creators like the producer, the writer of Jaws, they felt that they had made a huge mistake. Yeah, which is just a, a shame, a shame. Um, anyway, we roll the dice. Ash, thank you so much for, for contributing today. Uh, really appreciate the conversation you and Francesca brought to the table. And uh, I really hope our Eyes on Conservation audience enjoyed that. And I'm sure they did. I hope so too. Thank you, Greg. And thank you so much for listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I am Aishwarya Sridhar. An extended cut of this episode is available exclusively for our Patreon community on Patreon. And if you are not a member yet, you can support the work that we are currently doing for less than a dollar a creation. And we do like two to three creations in a month. So it would really help us to continue to bring important stories to you. And by contributing, 
you become an immediate part of our family. And the best way to do this would be to head over to www.patreon.com slash Collective, and that allows you to directly support the work that we are doing and we cannot do this without you. We need you guys. A very big thank you to Miss Francesca Trotman of Love the Ocean for joining us today and if you are interested in volunteering for Love the Oceans and to support the work that they are doing, some incredible work guys I'm telling you, then you can head over to their website which is www.lovetheoceans.org or you can even reach out to them on social media via Facebook, their page is Love the Ocean Organization or you can even reach out to them on Instagram and Twitter as well. The handle is Love the Ocean. For a full list of this episode's links and contributors, including music, please visit the show notes page on www.violenceinc.org EOC202. This is Aishwarya Sridhar once again reminding you that we have only one home, our precious earth. Stay safe, stay at home and a big thank you for listening and tuning in.